I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today we have another special guest for you. Dr. Kate Baker grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. She graduated with her DVM from the University of Tennessee in 2012. She then went on to complete a small animal rotating internship and then a three-year clinical pathology residency and master's degree at the University of Illinois. Dr. Baker became board certified in veterinary clinical pathology in 2016 and currently works as an educator, diagnostician, and consultant. She offers continuing education courses through her website, Veterinary Cytology Schoolhouse, as well as telecytology consultations through her online diagnostic service, which is called Pocket Pathologist. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm really excited about that name. Mm -hmm. She lives on a small farm in Tennessee with her husband and two small children. And in her free time, she enjoys traveling trying new craft beers, and attending music festivals. Dr. Baker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm glad you like my name of my my conversation. Like, uh, unique business names is one of my favorite things. Mm. Oh, my gosh. I'm glad I passed the test. Well, so how did you decide to become a clinical pathologist? I had a interesting road to becoming a pathologist, um, mostly because I knew I wanted to be a pathologist before I went into vet school, which is unusual. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it kind of, you know, if I go all the way back, I first was thinking about veterinary medicine when I was in high school and I was a kennel technician and I was really interested in veterinary medicine. I, I was, you know, allowed to go into the surgeries with the veterinarian that I was working for. And, um, he actually was at a recent conference that I spoke at, which was really, was really neat to see him, the owner of that clinic back from when I was in high school. But at that time I thought, okay, I want to be a veterinarian. So I went into undergrad pre-vet all through undergrad. And it was in probably my late, it was like my junior and senior year of undergrad that I started getting into my upper level biology classes, like histology and you know, molecular biology and all those super nerdy classes. And I was super into them. They were really hard, but I was just really into them. And I'd always been interested in pathophysiology and disease. I mean, I, my favorite show growing up was Mystery Diagnosis, which oh, yeah. if it, I don't know if anybody remember. Okay, oh, sure. Guys, yeah. No, it, yeah. I think it was on like, what, what was that on? I don't even remember. Some show. I think it was like the show. Discovery Channel yeah, or a something like that. Yeah. But I was super into that show, and it all just sort of makes sense now when I when I look back. But I went into um, so I at that time when I was in my in those upper level courses, I was thinking, well, I really like this, I really like this, you know, type of material and this this subject, and how do I, you know, I'm on this road to being a being a veterinarian. You know, obviously, veterinary medicine has all those things intertwined with it, but I really wanted to just kind of focus on that. So I realized that veterinary pathology existed. And so I continued my plan to go into veterinary school, applied, got in, went all through vet school with that intention of being a pathologist. So that's where I, that's how I got there. I actually planned on doing anatomic pathology for yeah. most of vet school. 
And then it wasn't until fourth year that I changed over to clinical pathology. And main reason being is because I really liked being more involved with the kind of everyday of the veterinarian. And I, I really liked psychology and I really liked hematology. And I still love anatomic pathology too, but clinical pathology was more my thing. Yeah. That, I think that's so cool that you knew that early, you know, I want to be a veterinarian, but I want to be a veterinarian in sort of a a way that um, most young people don't realize is possible. Yeah. Uh, so that's so exciting. I'm a master Googler. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, when I realized, you know, I'm on there, what, you know, probably Googling keywords, like, like, uh, you know, microbiology and veterinarian and figured out that <laughs> that pathology existed. So yeah, there's a lot of different avenues that you can go into in veterinary medicine. You can do general practice, of course, but all the way to specialty and, and pathology in particular for listeners who aren't familiar with pathology. It's the study of disease and diagnostic, diagnosis of disease and typically through the microscope. But we also have other facets of that, but the, the microscope is my main thing. I, I love cytology. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, JJ loves Scientology too. Yeah, that was my favorite area going through tech school. And nice. I remember, yes, <laughs> like that, uh, it's been a minute because we had to do a CBC by hand and it was timed in order to yeah. pass ClinPath for to graduate. That was well, an undertaking. It's a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of counting, <laughs> yeah. but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so what is your favorite type of cell? So I get asked this sometimes, <laughs> and it, it is a, a loaded question. Okay. How in the Fair world enough. do I choose? Sure. No, I th- honestly, I feel like it changes depending on my mood. Is that weird? It's kind of like music, I, think I feel like. It can be a lot like sure. music. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know. I, I mean, anything, you know, just one yeah. day to the next. I recently, or really since I've started, I've always loved squamous papilloma psychology. So the right. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, they're very beautiful. They're these big um, kind of magenta colored cells that are very unique to squamous papillomas. And so it's, it's fun to see them because one, they're beautiful. And two, because they are pretty much diagnostic for squamous papilloma and to the pathologist, you know, it's exciting when we have like a straightforward, yes. that's, that's what this is. So yeah. Yeah, that's probably, that's my main cell right now, at least. (laughs) You love them because they're not ambiguous. They are straightforward. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're not not terrible for the pet either. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff, what we diagnose is is sad, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, we can appreciate the cytology and how beautiful it is. But we know that the diagnosis is bad for the pet. So squamous papillomas are, are usually, you know, not a big deal. So unless they have them everywhere, that could be. That can be hard yeah. <laughs> uh, to treat, but yeah, they're usually not a big deal. I love this question now. I was worried about it. Like, I just kind of threw it in there, like, and I was worried about it. We talked about it before the podcast. I was like, I don't know. Like, it's kind of a goofy question, but now I think I it, like it. it might actually give, like, deep insight into your your human like yeah. your humanity, you know, mm-hmm. as a person. I, we're yeah. gonna ask I mean, it's definitely on. appropriate for like a pathologist, it. so. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Dr. Baker has brought some cases for us to go over. Oh, exciting. So um, we are going to l- give the floor to Dr. Baker. 
and have her talk about the history and signalment for case number one and see where it takes us. Okay, so this was a really interesting case. This was an older male neuter dog that had presented to his veterinarian for lethargy and not just not feeling well. And when he presented, they discovered that he had pale gums. And the veterinarian took a look at the gums and, you know, said these look pale and recognized that usually is associated with anemia, meaning the red blood cell mass is low. And there's a lot of different types of anemia that we'll get into and a lot of different causes of anemia. But at this point, the veterinarian was concerned that this dog could potentially have a condition called immune-mediated hemolytic anemia. We also just, that's a long term, so we say IMHA. And with uh, this condition, that pet needs a lot more care. And his red blood cell level was so low that he really needed a blood transfusion. So at that point, the veterinarian said, okay, you know, this dog needs more care. Let's send this over to the emergency and specialty clinic. And at that time, I was working inside of that clinic. I had an office in this large multi multi-specialty emergency clinic. Interestingly, my husband was also an emergency veterinarian there. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he actually was the veterinarian um, that took that case in, the emergency veterinarian that took that case in. And that dog came in to our hospital at that time. Usually we have a differential list and use that to select diagnostics. But this one's kind of unique because it comes with a diagnosis already. We won't have time to do a full review of IMHA for today's episode, but um, let's review some of the basics. Yeah. So with IMHA, it is a, a condition that obviously will cause anemia. But what's happening with IMHA is the body is producing antibodies that are attacking the red blood cells. And it's an inappropriate response. The body shouldn't attack its own red blood cells. What happens when that happens is that the red blood cells are then destroyed and patient becomes anemic. There is a number of different reasons why you can develop IMHA. It can either just happen for really no reason. The body's just doing it inappropriately. It can happen secondarily to different types of cancer, different types of infectious diseases, usually caused by ticks, so tick-borne diseases, or caused by rickettsial diseases that are transmitted by ticks, I should say. But um, there are a number of different causes of this. and it's a it's a a reasonable differential to have for a patient that has an, an anemic an anemia, but the problem with that is that there are lots of different causes of anemia. And so we have to look for additional support, both on the blood work and in the blood smear to tell us if that's exactly what's happening. And at this point that hadn't been done just yet. So So what abnormalities would you expect to see in, in lab work with a patient with IMHA? IMHA can present on blood work and on the blood smear a couple of different ways. But some of the hallmark things that we look for are cells called spherocytes. So those are red blood cells. And this is a review for a lot of the listeners probably, but spherocytes are, they're red blood cells that appear on the blood smear perfectly spherical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so spherocytes. So perfectly round and they lack central pallor, meaning they're not as pale in the middle. They don't have any of that pale uh, appearance that red blood cells normally should. And um, they're a little bit smaller looking. So they actually have the same amount of red blood cell mass as a normal red blood cell, but they've changed shape from that disc shape to a round kind of ball. That's getting into like the 
nitty gritty path details, but that's where I you love know, it. That's why it looks like that. That's the stuff that makes <laughs> so, me happy. <laughs> I know. Got me too. Yeah. So the the spherocyte is one type of shape change that you might see in patients with IMHJ. Uh, another thing that you might see is agglutination, which you can see with your naked eye sometimes. So macroagglutination, where you look at the the blood on a slide, like you're literally looking at it with your your bare eyes, and you see little peppering start to form on the slide, and there's there's um like little chunks basically of blood, and that's not normal to, for blood to look like yeah. that. And then if you look under the microscope, you can sometimes see microagglutination as well, where it's a similar thing. So those are two big things that you could see with an IMAJ case. Another thing that you could potentially see, and not in all cases, but that's pretty common is hyperbilirubinemia, where their bilirubin is high. And one thing that's important to realize is that not all patients with IMAJ will have hyperbilirubinemia. Mm -hmm. I sometimes hear people say, oh, well, it can't be IMAJ because it doesn't have hyperbilirubinemia. I'm definitely guilty of that. It's common. It's totally common to, to make that assumption. So if the body, if the liver is able to keep up with that with that processing of um, a bilirubin, then it's not going to back up into the blood and cause that hyperbilirubinemia. Yeah. Gotcha. So on the elevated bilirubin, you, does every case eventually develop it or not, no. not really? No, okay. not all. No. And it, it can have, it can, the speed at which the cells are being hemolyzed can have mm-hmm. a, a, an effect on that. So if it's happening very gotcha. acutely, you know, the liver is receiving that and it's having to process that and then it can back up. But if it's happening a little bit more slowly, you know, not as quite as all at one time, then the liver can keep up. And so it's not necessarily going to, I'm sure I'm positive. There's a, there's a statistic of how many cases out there develop it. I wish I knew off the top of my head. Oh, I, I do not know <laughs> I probably either. Should, I should know that because it might be most of them. I don't know, but definitely not all of them. Yeah, well, that's good information to know right off the bat. That's going to definitely impact how I handle mm-hmm. clinical cases because I I will say that when I'm looking at a case with an anemia, I do kind of like be like, well, it's probably not IMA, yeah. but I'm going to have to put it back on the list. Bust so, out that blood smear. That's I know, right. I know. Right. You're right, and your assumption may be right a lot of times. If you see the hyperbilirubinemia and you've got a an anemic patient, you know it it that's a a big differential to have, but it's not always going to be that and, and definitely the the opposite where you wouldn't necessarily always expect it. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Good thing to keep in mind. Now, our patient that, that came into the referral hospital, was their lab work suggestive of IMHA? Was it, it what you expected to find? So they, I actually didn't get the blood work in that case or get much additional history. Other, This is sometimes what happens. Is that the, <laughs> the game of telephone through the lines to, you know, the pathologist ends up with the least amount of information sometimes. Oh, yeah. yeah. So my, the information I got was that, because when I became involved with this case, what was when I received the blood smear, because what happened was, is that this patient came into the hospital, into the emergency hospital with presumptive IMHJ, and then a, a blood smear was performed at that point and, so, and taken to my office and I was taking a look at it. So what I knew of this patient was, that he had an anemia and he was referred for a transfusion and he had presumptive IMHA. So I, I wish I knew why the vet had uh, arrived at that. Maybe just because, um, you know, it's a, it's a cause of IMHA and it was just a presumption or maybe he did have a hyperbilirubinemia and that was something that they were thinking about. But yeah, at this point, I just had the blood smear and presumptive IMHA 
and that was it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what were you seeing on the blood smear? Yeah. So this is where things got interesting because when I put the blood smear up on, you know, my microscope and I started looking at it, immediately I did not see any suggestion for IMHA. So those things that we talked about that you would see with IMHA or that you you oftentimes do like spherocytes, like macro and microagglutination. So I, I wasn't seeing those. And more importantly, what I was seeing was another gigantic clue of what actually was going on with this pet. And that was that this dog had severe hypochromasia. And so what hypochromasia means, just as a refresher, is that the cells were very pale. They had a really significant increase in central pallor. So remember with spherocytes, it's a decrease in central pallor. There's like no, you know, no white zone in the middle. But with increased or with hypochromasia, that's increased central pallor. So the, the cells look really, really pale. They just have like a thin rim of hemoglobin around the outside. And the rest is like kind of a pale, like pinkish color or white even. So this was like, mm, no, <laughs> this is not IMHA. This is pointing another direction. And what that oftentimes is seen with um, is with uh, iron deficiency. And so that may be kind of like, oh, interesting, like, okay, but that's a huge clue because iron deficiency is most often in animals caused by chronic external blood loss. So some source of blood loss, either outside of the body or in into some scenario where they can't access it, like internal parasites or external parasites like fleas. So hookworms and fleas would be two big ones as far as parasites go that cause iron deficiency from chronic external blood loss. Um, other sources of external blood loss would be things that would cause hematuria, you know, severe hematuria or just prolonged hematuria. Uh, also GI blood loss is a big one. So if you have a patient that has any type of mass lesion in the GI tract or probably more commonly would be things like uh, GI ulcers. So this is big because what happens, and I've seen this a number of times, is a patient, it, you know, I get a blood smear for a presumptive IMHA and I see this and I think, you know, the first thing I want to know is, is this patient on any uh, steroid, chronic steroids or Rimadyl or something that could cause GI ulceration with long-term use? Now, those are generally, you know, disclaimer, those are generally safe drugs, but they can't, they do have their, <laughs> like, nobody like vilify Rimadyl and, you know, prednisone if you're listening, but they, they do have potential side effects for some patients and they can lead to GI ulceration. And GI ulceration can cause bleeding over time and can cause bleeding into the GI tract and blood loss. So imagine if you thought a patient had IMHA and you weren't thinking about the fact that the patient's on long-term Rimadyl and then you put the patient on prednisone or like maybe you do a washout with Rimadyl and you put on prednisone to treat its, you know, presumptive IMHA and then you perf that ulcer because that's, Yeah. So it's, it's a, a really important thing to look at blood smears. But um, yeah, so that's what, what I was seeing on the smear in this case. And so um, I can, you can, you know, we can pause there and you can ask me what you like with that. But there, I, I'm getting overexcited because I'm like, no, there's a clue. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I, I have young kids and they watch a lot of Blue's Clues, which, yeah. is, which is fun because it's like a throwback from when I was younger. Yeah. And I guess I don't. I don't know if it's more popular now again, or if I'm just like putting it on like subconsciously and they're into it. But anyway, it's like, you know, 
there's a clue. You know, and I think that's how, <laughs> that's how I feel when I when I when I see these types of cases. It's exciting for, that, for me as a pathologist. <laughs> I completely agree. I uh, I also get excited about clues. Like, I mean, yes, because mm-hmm. yeah. we, we wouldn't be in the vet field if we did get nope. excited about that type mm-hmm. of thing. But. So, uh, Doctor Baker, next thing we should talk about is characterizing anemias. What exactly is that and how is it done? Yeah, so characterizing anemia is really important. You know, you have an anemic patient and we can't just stop with that. We can't just say, oh, the patient's anemic because there's so many different causes of anemia. And so we have to use clues on both the CBC and in the blood smear to tell us what type of anemia, so characterizing it, which I'll expand on. Um, and then that will then help you narrow down your differential list about what might be causing that. So first step of characterizing anemia is determining if it's regenerative or non-regenerative. And what that means is, is that, is the bone marrow responding appropriately? So just to kind of even back it up a step further, when you have anemia, again, it means that the, the, the red blood cell volume is decreased. And what should happen is the bone marrow should then respond. They get these signals saying, hey, you know, the, the red blood cell mass is decreased. We need to pick up the pace of increasing, you know, we need to increase our red blood cell production. Bone marrow is responsible for that. And so primarily other organs are too, but that's the primary site. Mm -hmm. So what should happen is then the bone marrow starts producing red blood cells. And within a couple days, it's not right away. It will start kicking them out of the bone marrow and you'll see them in the, in the periphery, both on the blood smear and you'll see the hematocrit start to go up again. So hematocrit's the measurement of that red blood cell mass. And so when you are saying that your anemia is regenerative, that means the, the bone marrow is regenerating those red blood cells appropriately. When it's non-regenerative, it means the bone marrow is not re- uh, regenerating those red blood cells appropriately. So there are different ways we can determine that. They're, the most straightforward way is something called a reticulocyte count, which measures the bone marrow's response to the anemia by measuring the, the cells that should be in periphery, the reticulocytes. Um, which are young red blood cells. And it says basically, yes, this is responding appropriately, the bone marrow is or not. And so that's the main way to measure. And once you figure out, okay, is it regenerative or not? Say you have a regenerative anemia. There are two causes of regenerative anemia, hemorrhage and hemolysis. So the dogs, the animal, not always a dog, (laughs) anything, (laughs) is either losing blood, so hemorrhage, or it is the red blood cells are being destroyed, hemolysis. Mm. And so those are the two causes. Now, hemorrhage is one of those things that really relies on the veterinarian to examine the pet, try to find a cause. Sometimes it's very obvious, right? Like an animal just got hit by a car and it's, you know, or probably didn't just get hit by a car, but it has some bleed, external bleeding. It's very obvious. Maybe it has a hemoabdomen, so it's bleeding into its abdomen. Um, there's different types of hemorrhage that are quite obvious. And then hemolysis is less straightforward because we've already talked about IMHA as a cause of hemolysis, so immune-mediated destruction of red blood cells, but there's other causes too. Infectious organisms can destroy red blood cells, so infectious organisms that infect the red blood cells. You can also have it with certain toxins. Certain toxins can actually destroy red blood cells or cause them to be destroyed because of the damage that they do. So there are a number of different reasons for that. And that's where the blood smear comes into play, because what will sometimes happen is the very, you know, 
the, the, the hospital is so busy, right? Like the vet clinics are so busy. I'm married to a general practitioner. He, he does ER and general practice. And I understand like how busy it is in the clinics and it can be very difficult to take time to look at a blood smear. But I'm super passionate about blood smears yeah, because of these types of cases where there's such a significant clue in the blood smear and, and we would miss it if we didn't look. So I'm a big proponent of all anemia cases, definitely having a blood smear for these reasons. But it definitely, in this dog's case, played a big role in what happened with him. So we're looking at this dog. The, the results are a little bit odd for what we thought was going on, which was IMHA. In a, it, I think the, you said that they did a little bit more investigation and were able to ultimately determine the cause. Yeah. What, what was going on? Yeah. So at that point, you know, at this point, I'm looking at the blood smear. I realized there's severe hypochromasia. And I, go, I actually went to the to the doctor on the case. Um, at this point, it had transferred from my husband, I think, to the internal medicine specialist. And I spoke with them and I said, this is not IMHA. This is iron deficiency. And he was very surprised. And I said, you know, we need to look for a cause of blood loss. And at this point, there was really no clear caught like nobody had found anything or suspected anything we're kind of we're just riding that imha it's probably imha wave and they went back to the dog and did a rectal exam and found that he had melana so melana is for mm. anybody who doesn't know what melana is it's dark tarry colored stool and what that tells you is that there is gi blood loss and uh usually you know um upper gi blood loss and so that was really interesting because it was, it was, it was another, again, another clue. <laughs> and it's yeah. saying, you know, this is, this makes sense. So this dog has been losing blood through his GI tract chronically. He is now iron deficient because when you lose blood externally, you lose iron and the bone marrow can't keep up with production of red blood cells because you need iron to make red blood cells. And so then you become anemic because bone marrow just can't, can't, you know, regenerate those red blood cells. So Spoke to the to the internist. He found that they found that, and the next step was uh, an abdominal ultrasound to see if they could figure out what was potentially going on with him. What they found was that he had a stomach mass, mm-hmm. and I know, I know. And so the owners did decide. They spoke with the owners, and the owners did decide to take the dog to surgery to see if they could remove the mass. Yeah. And so he he did end up going to surgery. Um, unfortunately, the mass was non resectable. And so the the story has a sad ending in that he was euthanized before they woke him up from surgery. But the, I guess, uh, silver lining seems like too cheeky of a way to put it. But the the good thing about this in the end was that, I mean, this dog had this disease, whether we liked it or not. Right. And what we ended up being able to do for this pup is that we were able to figure out his true problem just from something as simple as, the clue on the blood smear and prevent any prolonged suffering, you know, by treating a, a disease he didn't have and, you know, owner finances and all those things, like just being in the hospital for a long time, being treated for IMHA or whatever. And so one thing I want to say too, is that I, the, the veterinarian that referred him over did a great, you know, job. Like they referred him early on in the case. So they didn't yeah. do anything wrong in this case um, by saying it was like a presumptive IMHA. They they thought that might be what it is. They didn't diagnose it as that. And they just said he needs more care. And so that's when they enlisted the 
the the emergency veterinarians and the specialists in the care. So it was a, a big team effort to figure out what was going on with him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. There's absolutely nothing wrong with getting a patient to the place where they need help. Mm-hmm. And and I would say the ability to recognize when something needs specialist intervention is a skill that you have to develop. Yep. And I, so I think they did a good job there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. So, uh, Dr. Baker, what are some resources that veterinary professionals can use to help practice characterizing anemias? So there are a number of good resources. It kind of depends on what exactly you're looking for. And one, I mean, I would start with obviously getting a good book. And there are a number of different hematology books that you can get. I honestly, I haven't I haven't met a bad veterinary hematology book, so <laughs> I, I really do. I think they're all great. Um, there's one that I is my sort of go-to. It's Harvey's Atlas of uh, Veterinary Hematology. Yeah. It's, oh, you like that one? It's got good yeah. pictures. It has great yeah. pictures. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's such a good, it's a very straightforward, um, you know, not overly, you know, heavy, and it's an atlas, so it's got great pictures. You, if you're into courses, if you want like more formal kind of online instructional guidance, I actually personally have a mastering cytology or mastering. Well, I also have a mastering cytology course, but mastering hematology is a is a five hour race approved online course I have that goes through characterizing all the anemias and Sweet. all the those things. I know. Yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah, it's very important. That's now we just need <laughs> more state boards to accept online CE. Yes. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. During the pandemic, they were also, I mean, yeah. it's still pandemic times, but early yeah. on in it, they were also like nice about the online CE. But yeah, and then there's also a resource that I'm not sure if they have, you know, uh, practicing characterizing anemia, but it's a good resource is eclinpath.com. It's an online textbook, essentially, but it's very user-friendly, and it's from the Cornell uh, pathologist, clinical pathologist. I love it. I go on there all the time if I need a refresher for something. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Well, now, Dr. Baker, you brought another couple cases for us, I think. I did. Hit Hit us with case number two. All right. Case number two. Case number two is one of my favorite cases I've ever had. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So you guys are in for a treat. Yeah. Yay. The, uh, in fact, this case, I wrote up with a colleague for a publication because it was just that interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I don't want anybody listening to think, oh, well, it must be boring them or like not applicable to me because it's, you know, must be rare enough to be written up. No, if you, you know, especially if you live in Florida or Texas, um, this is definitely something to be aware of. And with travel these days, you know, I, I won't give it away. I'm going to yeah, start listening. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, no spoilers. I know, okay. I know. Mm-hmm. I just get too excited. Okay. okay, okay. So this is a seven-year-old female pit bull. And she presented to her primary veterinarian for lethargy. And she also, her owners noticed that she wasn't walking normally. So she just was definitely off. And on presentation, the information that I got about how she looked on her exam was that she was ataxic. I didn't get any additional information, you know, expanded on that, but ataxia was definitely one of her clinical signs. The veterinarian decided at that point, well, I'll say, interestingly, the owners, I do know that the owners discussed with the primary veterinarian that they were very concerned that the 
neighbors had poisoned the dog because it's always, always the neighbor's fault. <laughs> Why is it always that, the neighbor? That's weird. I don't know. People always jump to that. I know. And I'm like, what kind of relationship do y'all have with y'all's neighbors? <laughs> like at no right. point would I think like Janice or whatever, my na- you know, would be like, you know, like that would not be my top uh, differential yeah. for a yeah. cat illness over yeah. here. A lot, of, so. a lot of paranoia about people's neighbors. It <laughs> kind of makes you wonder. I'm sure. I mean, I guess it's possible that it's happened at some point, but sure. literally every case I've ever had where someone's like, I think my pet's been poisoned and I know who yeah. did it. I'm yeah. like. No, that's not. That wasn't the thing. Right. That's not. Maybe like, or like the dog got into the owner's edibles and they're like, oh, the, they must have thrown <laughs> the, the owners through something over the. Over yeah, the yeah, yeah. It's like my mm, uh, best so. friend gave my dog this <laughs> marijuana. I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah, because that seems logical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't think they're throwing those sex things over the fence. But, <laughs> you know, it, also, too, just from the owner's perspective, they're seeing something abnormal with their pet and they're trying to make sense of it when they don't understand you know, the, the medicine aspect of it. So I understand, but you know, at this point they're like, okay, we think that the, uh, the neighbors had something to do with this. The vet's trying to figure out what's going on with the dog and did a CBC at that point. And so they started with the CBC just to see if that would give them any information and noticed that she had a mild non-regenerative anemia. So that goes back to that classification. So non-regenerative and it was mild. So the presumption at that point was that it was probably like an anemia of chronic disease or, chron- or inflammation that is basically what that's, you know, you basically can see mild non-regenerative anemia with any condition. If it gets more severe than, you know, moderate or severe, then you're looking at the bone marrow for like, what do you, what's going on there? But the more interesting and I guess more interesting abnormality that was found on those CBC was the thrombocytopenia. So thrombocytopenia mm. is, you know, decrease in platelet mass. So uh, the the platelet count was low. And there are a number of different causes of thrombocytopenia. I can, you know, kind of mention those that there are infectious causes of thrombocytopenia. There is uh, immune mediated causes. So just like our IMHA case, the body can actually attack platelets as well and cause thrombocytopenia, perineoplastic response. So the animal has cancer somewhere and it is actually telling the body to attack its platelets just inappropriately. And that happens as well. So thrombocytopenia in this case, abnormal, but still didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's when I got the blood because this was a. Oh, that's when you got the blood. Okay. Yeah. Because this wasn't inside our hospital. So. That was, they, I got the case as just a sheet of paper with the blood smear and I actually called the vet. So that's why I know any of that stuff. But one of the things that you want to do when you have a thrombocytopenic patient is look at a blood smear. One, to see if you've seen any clues as to why, but also to confirm that it's a real thrombocytopenia because our machines are great, but they're not perfect. And especially in cats, they like to clump their platelets like, Mm. whoa, and they'll clump into like balls and then the machine doesn't read them. And so it'll say, oh, this cat has a thrombocytopenia. And then you look at the blood smear and there's tons of platelets everywhere and it's not thrombocytopenic. So side note, always check (laughs) your blood smear for platelet clumps. I've had cases where the animal was referred to the specialty hospital. It was worked up for a thrombocytopenia, which is 
uh, a long and expensive process, and it turned out that nobody looked at a blood smear and the animal was perfectly normal. Oh no! You know, because yeah, right, right, and it happens. It happens, but it's a it's a it's a lesson to look at your blood smear. So this was confirmed. I looked at the blood smear and I did see there was a thrombocytopenia, and then. This was one of my best days. <laughs> okay. All right, let's go. <laughs> I was like cruising around this blood smear and not thinking I was going to find anything exciting. I don't know. A lot of a lot of blood smears are boring. Doesn't mean you don't do them because sometimes they're mm-hmm. not like this case. But I'm, you know, just kind of I probably was eating my sandwich like, you know, eat my lunch whatever, not not even thinking anything of it and all of a sudden I came across these organisms. <laughs> And I wish that I could show, I know you're going to link uh, an uh-huh. article in the show Absolutely. notes so that everyone can look, but these things were these little spirochetes. So they're these spiral shaped organisms that look like, I mean, they look like little itty, itty bitty, 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 tiny worms. They're not worms, but that's just what I could, you know, yeah. little snakes. I don't know. Just kind of <laughs> what they look. And they, they were everywhere Whoa. and they don't live inside of a cell. They're just free in the background. So they're just hanging out like in between the red blood cells and they get caught up in these big clumps and there can be just so many of them. They almost look like little noodles or hair. It's really weird. Oh yeah. (laughs) JJ's pointing at her hair. They do kind of look like curly hair. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I actually got a great picture of one that was hanging on to a neutrophil and it it was hanging onto the top and and like tendering <laughs> down. It's actually in the paper that I yes. wrote, and it looks like a little hair, like a little piece Saw of curly it. hair. I was like, it looks kind of like somebody curled a ribbon and attached it to a cell balloon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So I was just really surprised because I had not. I, I recognized what this organism yeah. was, and I'm. I'll, I'll say it in a minute, but. I had not seen this before until, or like I had read about it when I was studying for my pathology mm-hmm. boards. So that's always really exciting, especially as a new pathologist and, you know, as a new vet or a new vet tech, like you get to see the diseases you've been learning about for the first yeah. time. So that was, that was pretty cool for me. And I haven't seen it again since actually, and I've been uh, doing this for a little bit longer, but so, you know, at first, at first look, I thought, okay, this is Borrelia. So Borrelia is a, a an organism that we probably in veterinary medicine are most familiar with when we think about Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. So Borrelia burgdorferi is the causative agent of Lyme disease. Now, technically, this type of Borrelia that I was seeing, which is not Borrelia burgdorferi, it's uh, actually Borrelia terricate, which is fun to say. <laughs> um, if <laughs> is uh, would look the same as Borrelia burgdorferi. Oh, yeah. So being able to tell, you wouldn't be able to tell those apart if you were looking at them just on, you know, on cytology, on a blood yeah. smear. But the thing is, is that this disease, which is called relapsing fever, so drum roll, da, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was re- it was relapsing fever, which is the name of the disease that's caused by Borrelia terricate, is you will see organisms in high numbers on the blood smear versus Lyme disease, so Borrelia burgdorferi, that has not been reported to even see them at all. So, yeah. So just by the fact that you don't expect to see them on a blood smear with Lyme disease and the fact that you do expect to see them in high numbers with relapsing fever, 
allows us to make that safe presumptive diagnosis. So at this point, I said, this is relapsing fever. Well, first of all, I called my friend who is a pathologist at Texas A&M and uh, said, you know, she's an expert in this particular disease. And I, I said, I know that you have a PCR down there for relapsing fever. Can we do that? And I don't, I don't know if it's commercially available or not. I know she, she has it for her research. Mm-hmm. So I said, can we, you know, do this PCR to confirm that that's what it is? Um, even though I was pretty sure, you know, just to make sure, just to have that confirmation. So we did. I sent them. Um, I had the veterinarian actually call the veterinarian, talk to them about what was going on and asked that they send some blood down to Texas. So this this dog was actually in Florida um, and it, it's more common in Texas, relapsing mm-hmm. fever. But uh, that's part of what made it interesting that this dog was in Florida. So they sent blood to my friend in Texas and confirmed that it was relapsing fever with the PCR. Wow. Yeah. So, so yeah. I I had to look up what relapsing fever was. I was like, what in the hell is that? I don't, I've never even heard of that, mm-hmm. I don't feel like. So that's so interesting. Uh, now, this is not common in the U.S., right? No, it's not. I mean, it's it's if you're going to see it, you're probably going to be in te- Texas or Florida, um, like I mentioned. But I don't know of it being reported in any other area of the U.S. It's transmitted by soft ticks that are specific to those areas. So that's the main reason why it's uh, confined to those two states. And of course, it's important to know about even if you don't live in those two states, because like I mentioned earlier before I started and was trying to give it away. You know, you you have to think about how infectious organisms and their vectors, like these soft ticks, are are moving to different areas and spreading. You know, climate's changing, and they're they're infesting other areas that we haven't seen them before. So, luckily, right now it's just those two states that we know of. But something important to know about: I didn't learn about it in vet school either. So, I mean, I went to vet school in Tennessee. It's not something that we saw, but I bet the vet students in in Texas probably know yeah. about it, especially because. <laughs> because of the, my clinical pathologist friend there. But I also forgot to mention that this dog did have a fever oh, on presentation. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, which makes right. sense, relaxing fever. fever. Yeah. 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 Now, there's, um, it's the species of ticks. Um, do you know how to say no. this word? <laughs> or, oh my ornithodorus? Gosh. Nope. No idea how to say it. That sounds good to me. We'll put it in the nope. show notes. Uh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's not, I was like, I have never heard of that. Genus, when, before right? we started, I, yeah, before we started, I, uh, I actually looked it up to try to like figure out how to say it. Cause I thought if they asked me to say that, I'm just going to say soft. Yeah, tips. there it is. <laughs> I like it. It's a good, it's a, it's a cool plan. Mm-hmm. I like it. Starts with a no. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that's, that one is really exciting because like, as you said, you know, you're looking at the blood smear and you're just like, bam, I know what it is right away. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how do yeah. you treat uh, this? Yeah. So normally you don't want to ask a pathologist okay. how to treat anything, mm-hmm. sure. but I will tell you, I know the file and I shouldn't say that just broad, broadly because <laughs> some pathologists actually do still treat things. I, on the other hand, do not. I don't even give my dog's heartworm preventative. I make my husband do it. Like, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with giving any medicines. I, yeah. But in this case, this was uh, this is part of why this was such a fun case, too, is that the dog completely recovered after just seven days of doxycycline, which it makes sense. Doxy, you know, these, these foreign diseases are that's how you tend to treat them. But, um, yeah, perfectly normal dog. No 
neurologic signs, no anemia, no thrombocytopenia after seven days. And uh, that what was also cool about her case was the fact that she did present with those neuro signs because only 20% of dogs that are infected with this organism have neurologic signs. So she was kind of a unique case. And it wasn't the neighbor. <laughs> it was not the neighbor a poisoning. The neighbor got off scot-free. The neighbor was not standing over the fence and throwing tiny ticks at the dog. <laughs> was not. No. Oh gosh. So I when uh when you mentioned that you wanted to to cover this particular disease process, I had to like go through and look it up because I was like, I don't know. I've never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Um but I um I did find a retrospective study uh, that all of the cases up from that were in Texas, and uh, in that one, four out of five dogs responded to oral tetracycline. So that's pretty good. Oh yeah, that yeah. is good. Yeah, it's very oh. good. That that study was my my friend was first off. Yeah, that that's the lady you yeah. called and was like about the yeah. PCR. That's uh-huh. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, she's she's the go-to. What's her name? Julie Pachone. Hi, Julie. (laughs) (laughs) Julie, we'll post uh, the DOI for your study, too, okay? (laughs) She's great. So, Dr. Baker, now you have one last case for us today. Hit us with the case. So, this case was a one-year-old male chihuahua who presented to the referring veterinarian for lethargy. Again, just real nonspecific signs. I mean, I want to start by saying I have chihuahuas. (laughs) I'm a Chihuahua person. <laughs> sure, I mean, so I can say this, but I bet the 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 vet and the owner probably knew something was wrong when the dog probably didn't want to bite the vet. Oh, that's, you know, that's probably, yeah, that's probably accurate. You know, a big yeah. sign that something's not right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I love Chihuahuas. I do, even their spice, even the spicy ones. But yeah, so this dog presented lethargy, uh, just wasn't feeling good, uh, anorexic or hyporexic, so just not not eating normally, and. When he presented, he was being examined, and the veterinarian was doing the full exam, noticed that, again, he had pale gums. So this is another uh, hematology case, so another anemia. And when the vet noticed he had pale gums, of course, that prompted him to do uh, a CBC and recognized that the dog had a severe anemia, and it was regenerative. So again, at that point, we're thinking hemorrhage or hemolysis, and there was no sign of hemorrhage in this dog, no open wounds, no hemocavities, nothing like that. And he also urinated and it was red. Hmm. And so at that point, the question was, you know, why is it, why is the, the urine red? Is it is he losing blood actually in his urine or could this be a pigmenturia? So just pigment like either hemoglobin or myoglobin. And so a urinalysis was done and it was supportive of pigmenturia. There was not a a red blood cell component to that that, um, urine. So at this point, we have a patient that has severe regenerative anemia and pigmenturia. And that is pointing towards hemolytic anemia. At this point, the veterinarian sent in blood. And this is when I became involved. So this was not an in-house case. I I received the blood smear, received the history on this patient. um, And I was looking at the blood smear to help them try to figure out what was going on. He did write on his submission form, 
concern for IMHA. So again, that's a common thing for people to be concerned about. Again, totally reasonable differential. He was a young dog. People might be thinking, oh, he's only one. I have seen IMHAs and dogs that yeah. young. So it's it's definitely possible. But like we've been talking about this whole time, there are other causes of hemolytic anemia that we need to think about as well. So the blood smear came into play here. I put it up and was looking around and immediately realized, again, there's no spherocytes. There's no agglutination. I'm not seeing anything that suggests that this is an IMHA. But instead, I'm seeing things that point us in a completely different direction. So similar theme to our other cases. And what I was seeing was tons of Heinz bodies, which are those little pale pink, little round structures that usually are periphery on the periphery of the red blood cell. And some people say they look like nipples. They do. Yeah. <laughs> or like some I always hate weird appendage, like a... Yeah. Right. Something phallic. I don't know. But they... Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. It does. It's the best way to describe mm-hmm. it. But I, yeah, it always, I don't know. But yes, that is what it, you can visualize. That's what it looks like. So... It's a uh, it's a change that you you see when you have um, oxidative damage specifically, which I'll come back to in a second. The other shape change that I was seeing were eccentrocytes, oh. and what eccentrocytes look like is like this crescent shaped area of um, like white right up under the red blood cell membrane. These are so hard to describe, but it's a like if you imagine like a moon mm-hmm. and it's white and it's right up under the red blood cell membrane. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> I'm very visual. Yeah. So it's I mean, that sounds great. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Awesome. Perfect. So eccentrocytes and Heinz bodies ind- indicate there's oxidative damage. What in the world does oxidative damage mean? It's basically where you can have damage to the red blood cell, just kind of in the simplest terms, um, secondary to the oxidative process within the red blood cell being disturbed. And why might that happen? There are kind of two big categories. One are toxins, and that's the one that we think about primarily, I think, in vet med. I, I know when I was learning about this in vet school, I kind of just always associated this with toxins. But you also can see Heinz bodies um, and a resultant anemia sometimes in patients with certain metabolic conditions like diabetes. I, I see, feel like I see it with some frequency in old cats that have lymphoma and um also like hyperthyroidism. So those are some of the metabolic conditions. But this is a young dog, so we're just going to be thinking about toxins. So different types of toxins that can potentially cause uh, oxidative damage and Heinz bodies and eccentrocytes. If you're a horse, which you might argue that horses are kind of like chihuahuas. (laughs) If it was a horse, we might be thinking about a red maple toxicity. Um, I have seen one of those cases before. Um, And... We, uh, what other, what other toxins? So mothballs would be a weird oh, one. Yeah. Right. I know. So naphthalene and mothballs, skunk spray can cause it. More commonly, we might be thinking about things like acetaminophen, especially in cats. So acetaminophen toxicity, mm-hmm. onion and garlic toxicity, if they eat enough of it can cause it. And zinc toxicity secondary to eating pennies minted after 1982 in the U.S., which in Canada I think they're also, I think in Canada, I don't know about Canadian pennies. I looked it up, actually. Canadian pennies minted from 1997 to 2001 contain enough zinc to create a problem. You came prepared. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I dropped the mic, but no. No, we can <laughs> you're the one expensive. That. Yeah. Okay. The proverbial mic. Expensive. And also um, nuts, bolts, like certain zinc-containing products, like nuts and, um, and bolts can do that. And dice, actually. Dice? Playing dice. Wow. So, yeah. Hmm. There's a report of playing dice um, having the ability to do that. So called the, the veterinarian in this case, and I said, hey, this is really interesting. Not at all what you expected. It's not INHA. We've got signs of severe oxidative damage here. And what will happen to the red blood cells when that happens is they'll be destroyed because the body sees that as an abnormality. And it'll remove those red blood cells. And then you end up with anemia. Or they'll actually sometimes burst inside the vasculature and cause an intravascular hemolytic anemia, which this dog did have. I saw that he had red blood cell ghosts, which is another, uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. It sounds so dramatic. Very spooky. But <laughs> very spooky. They're these uh, kind of pale, very, very pale, like way paler than the hypochromasia we were talking about earlier, where they just look like like little, like wisps of red blood cells in the vasculature that's what you see with intravascular hemolysis that actually fit with this dog because he had hemoglobinuria so that all fits mm -hmm. together that yeah. he had intravascular hemolysis so i said hey he's got intravascular hemolysis which is clinically very important because that's a, a not a good situation that can cause renal failure because of all the hemoglobin clogging up the kidneys and i said it what in the world did this dog eat like we need to <laughs> figure this out in a young dog i it's always very important to take a radiograph or, or an old dog, either one, and see if they've eaten a penny because that is something that you can treat. Mm -hmm. But if you don't look for it, then you don't know it's there and then they die because it's a, it can be a fatal condition. So they took a radiograph in that case and found $2.52. <laughs> they did see a metal opacity in his stomach and said, oh, yep, that's what this is going to be. So they took that dog to surgery. And found that he had that that amount of That's change. That's a lot which, of change. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of change. I have a picture of the of the surgery yeah. bowl with the with the money in it. Like, we, yeah. Can and we it, put it on on sure. on the social media? I would, yeah, the yeah. vet. Uh, yeah, the vet gave me permission to awesome. use use the photos. So yeah, <laughs> I can send the I can send you the radiograph too. He, he gave me permission to use those because it's a great teaching case and it's a great example of of again. We have to look at the blood smear to give us that clue to lead us to, mm -hmm. you know, we might go ahead and take radiographs in cases like this anyway without the blood smear. But like this was a straight beeline to the radiograph and then the removal of the change. And um, one that was really fulfilling for me to be a part of. But I'll tell you one quick uh, side story that uh, the ER again that I worked in or the ER specialty practice I worked in, there was this one dog and I won't say anything more about her other than she was she was a, a, a naughty little dog oh no she came she came in no less than a dozen times and i am not kidding you like i would not believe this if i was listening to this i swear i have all the radiographs i, I won't link these because we didn't get permission but uh, i have all the radiographs from when this dog came in at least a dozen times for penny ingestion and the owners were like we do not know where she is getting this change what? like she <laughs> Does she look like a piggy had, bank? I, they're not, and they're not delicious. Nope. I don't think. Is she? I, I, I think I can say that she was a beagle. That's um, not identifying. So that kind of yeah, right. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, right. And so she was probably. I don't know if they had buried treasure yeah, outside, like, and she was finding it. She's know, digging up so someone's like old piggy bank or a like wishing well outside. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, like a wishing well is a good idea. Like where, where you know, I'm trying to think of yeah. 
in my day-to-day life now in 2022. It's like that movie Stand By Me where the uh, character was burying jars of pennies <laughs> under his porch and never found them. Maybe. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> she found the pennies. You know, uh, wh- how often do I come into contact with pennies on a day-to-day basis in 2022? Zero I percent mean, of the time. Like, no. I can't even remember the last time I even saw one. Maybe my couch. Yeah. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they were <laughs> cleaning out their couch. Everything is like digital currency, mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. Very. Yeah. That's weird. bananas. Wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They they became. It was very clear after like the fifth visit, like what she was there for each time. They didn't have to do a lot That's of investigation. So, like, <laughs> would they know she's looking pale? We need to do an X-ray again, or mm-hmm. they, that's what? Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, is this for real? She's back again. It became this sort of joke in the hospital. Just like she's back mm-hmm. and she ate Man, pennies. Again. I bet that was expensive. Yeah, I felt bad for the owners because they didn't. Oh, yeah. She had to have surgery oh several God. times and not each time because I guess sometimes they caught it when they were already in the colon. And so they just passed mm-hmm. through, thankfully. But she had multiple surgeries. Through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Naughty, naughty. I wish dog. sometimes we could just ask them like what. So now what. <laughs> <laughs> was the thought process on this, you know? Yeah. I know of a case recently that came in for foreign object. It did not have zinc toxicosis, luckily, but it was like suspected foreign object. You know, stomach looks weird on radiographs. And when the surgeon came out of surgery, it was like an overflowing bowl of just random objects. Like it was um, like, what? What? It was like, pieces of stuffed animal like here's a hair tie here's like a milk carton thing here's like some type of toys that people who work there who had kids were like oh they're the blah 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 toys and i'm like yeah i, mm-hmm. I don't know but it was like the mo- just a huge assortment of stuff and i'm like what possessed totally indiscriminate. you to yeah. swallow these items yeah when i was an intern in the brief period of time that i actually was like involved in clinical medicine I was involved in a foreign body surgery of a dog. It was a relatively large breed dog, not huge, not giant. I mean, it was just a biggish dog, Mm -hmm. but still not. I don't know how this happened, but this dog ingested an entire one piece swimming swimsuit in 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 it. Still one piece, and it was a size large. Like it's a it had like that much fabric. So much fabric. Can you imagine him having to choke that down? I don't know. We pulled it out in one piece it was wild I, I don't i don't understand i've seen a dog swallow an entire beach towel uh that became mm-hmm. a linear foreign body and i've had a dog you know those uh doormats for like outside like an outside doormat mm-hmm. that are like scratchy mm-hmm. you know what i'm talking about uh-huh. i don't know what they're made out of but it's like mm-hmm. some type of yeah i have one type mm-hmm. of, I know you exactly know, what you're the mm-hmm. dog had eaten the whole mat no. and it's mm-hmm. like oh why it hurts i can't even touch it with my bare feet and you know like why would you put that in your esophagus like what that doesn't make any sense i know sense. It's like the ones that eat brillo pads like <laughs> a brillo pad that no sure that's like eternal yeah. okay. well, these are the same these are the same creatures that are going after porcupines that's so like, true they don't i don't know that they really think about mm-hmm. these things. Uh, you're right you're right they, they just were like i can't believe i ate the whole thing mm. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Baker, thank you so much for yes. coming and being on the podcast with us. Thank you. This was fun. So takeaways for the audience. Mine is uh, do a blood smear and don't rule out IMHA if it yeah. doesn't have hyperbilirubinemia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> JJ, what about you? 
Don't leave your loose change out. Don't leave your loose change out. I love it. <laughs> so I started thinking about that again. I was like, not only is that two fifty two a lot, but that was a Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where was a small. That's a. Is it? A, it was. Yeah. Was it trying to be a coin purse? Yeah. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Those are excellent takeaways. That's exact. Those are the two I would have put on a PowerPoint. So I might use that. I might use that, that part about it when you change out. Next talk I do. There is yeah. a disease called relapsing fever. If I yes. move to Texas yeah. or Florida, I need mm-hmm. to know about those things. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, Dr. Baker, thank you so much again. We really enjoyed recording with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I had a blast. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. If you have stories, questions, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. We'll see you next time. Thank you, and bye. Bye Bye-bye.